Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. There's a few of you I haven't met yet. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to teach today. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn into Genesis. We're going to be at the very beginning of your Bible today. Genesis, flipping here and there a little bit and tracing a storyline. We will have other passages. In fact, we're using a lot of passages today, but they're all going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible because you don't like the one you have, or you've never been a big fan of the translation, listen, we have free Bibles for you out on the table outside. Feel free to grab one on the way out, okay? Um, That's why we bought them. So while you're turning to Genesis, that didn't take long to do, though, by the way, because it's in the front of your Bible, right? I'm all stalling to give you time to go to Genesis. It's not really necessary, I guess. Um, I got my first job when I was 14 years old. First job working for somebody else. Um, I had had jobs off and on from the ages of 12 all the way up, even making good money. Uh, But 14 was the first time that I started working for someone who was not related to me. Um, I was working at a gym, right? Not because I was all swole and looked like I needed to be working at a gym. I was the guy that changed the water out and changed the toilet paper and wiped the sweat off the bench press and put all the weight plates back where they go, because all of you who work out in a gym, you never put the weight plates back where they go. You just stick them back on the nearest peg. That's what I did. From that point until today, I've never not had a job. I've always been employed. In fact, all the way through college, I had multiple jobs. One time I had three different jobs going on at the same time. I've always been a very, very, very hard worker. In fact, I've been accused of overworking, rightfully accused. I've been accused of a lot of things. Uh, but one thing I've never been accused of is being lazy. Never gotten that applied to me. Even my parents thought I should chill out a little bit. Luke, you're a little too over high strung, a little bit of an overachiever. Just tap the brakes a little bit. But what if I told you that even overachievers can be slackers? We could be a little bit lazy, even overachievers. There's a separate question. What if work didn't need to be a four-letter word? What if we could find great, solid, and enduring satisfaction in the work that is before us? In this series of looking about how we are different, and the series name is We Are Different, and we are kind of on the home stretch of this. We've looked at how we're different from God, how we're different from each other, and how we're different from a city. And even amidst all of our differences, most all of us, all of us, have laziness in us. We're all slackers to a certain degree, to a certain degree. Now, it might come out in different ways, and it might manifest in in different forms and shapes, but all of us can do it. In fact, some of us are semi-professionals at it. If it was a sport, some of us would have sponsors for it. We've got being a slacker down. We know how to innovate in order to be even more lazy. The thing about the gospel is it radically reshapes us, though. The gospel changes us. The gospel, the story of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus, radically reshapes and has massive implications on how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see each other, how we see the city at large. It even reshapes how we should be seeing work. So just in case you were a little fuzzy on what a lazy person looks like, the Bible goes to great depths to show us, right? So we're going to look at a little bit of a character sketch on what it looks like to be a slacker. Of course, the Bible doesn't, word, doesn't use the word slacker. The Bible uses the word sluggard, but we don't really use that word anymore. We say slacker, so I feel totally fine changing that word in. So as we go through this, try not to poke the person next to you. Don't do this thing, right? It will come back on you. 
And I know some of you are already thinking right now, even if Luke bombs this message, which is likely, it could happen, even if Luke bombs this message, I know exactly who I'm going to send the link for the audio to. I know who needs to hear this sermon on laziness. Let's look at Proverbs 26. Don't flip there in your Bible. We're going to have this put up on the screen. I want you to stay in Genesis. Verse 13 in the 26th chapter, it says, The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I mean, they're stacked right there. Boom, 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 boom. It's interesting that Proverbs will do this, okay? Um, But what we see in there, and I've picked three mega themes out, and we're going to blow through them and move on, because this isn't where we want to spend a lot of time. But what this this passage does is it shows us that that slackers, sluggards, are very, very poor at starting things. We're not good starters. We get that in verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. What's going on right here? It's an excuse. Not, Not even a good one, right? Just an excuse. Slackers are very, very good at inventing excuses, even poor ones, like there's a lion in the road. Oh, I would get out and do that, but there's a lion out there. A lion. This is a person who is so lazy, they have pretty much given up on the whole concept of constructing a decent enough excuse to get them out of the work. The dog ate my homework, so to say. It's being replaced. And a lot of times whenever we start running out of excuses to not start work, we usually go one of two ways. One way we go is our excuses start to kind of devolve into this. They just start sounding really stupid, right? There's a lion in the streets. But sometimes they get really good. In fact, so good that we even start to believe them ourselves. The slacker doesn't necessarily refuse to start things. They just don't commit either. Letting minutes slip by, letting moments slip by, letting opportunities slip by. And just when we are tempted to ask them, why didn't you capitalize on that? That door was wide open. Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you show up to that interview? Why didn't you make that thing work for you? What is wrong with you? Why didn't you do this? All we hear is an elaborate excuse. There's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the road. Always good at watching things, never jumping in. Slackers don't just struggle in starting things, they struggle in changing things too. We actually get this in verse 14. It's a beautiful picture of what a slacker looks like. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Catch the imagery here. Doors swing on the hinges because it's grooved perfectly. If you've ever replaced doors in a house, you know it's a little bit of a pain getting the new door to match the old set, the old hardware set in the frame. But have you ever known anyone, maybe some of you are this person, where it's like when you get into bed, it is like a ridge has been cut and it is so comfortable, you fit right in the slot. And the only movement that's going on is back and forth, rolling over, back and forth, back and forth, right? Like a door on its hinges. What does this teach us? With slackers, a lot of times there's a lot of movement, not a lot of progress. A lot of movement, not a lot of going anywhere, a lot of activity, a lot of action, but nothing is really getting done. So why fix something? Why change anything? Why innovate on anything? Because somebody else will come by and do it for sure. It's the thought process of a slacker. If I just hold a wall up and lean up against it just long enough, someone else will come and pick the hard thing to do. Someone will do it. 
I'm just going to be here looking busy, doing something busy, but not really doing anything helpful. Innovation. Innovation to a slacker is a very foreign concept. Unless, check that, unless they're innovating to provide themselves with more time for leisure and laziness. Right? Then they're very innovative. So I walked into my house once in college, and I lived with a couple of guys for a couple years in college in a house, not in a dorm. And I walked in, and he was watching TV, not an uncommon sight, about 15 feet away from the TV. It's the way our room was set up. And we had one of those, this is before flat panel anything, no plasma, LCD, LED, anything, right? It's just a big, giant, dumb TV. And the remote had channel, volume, and power. That's how old I am. Now you know, right? And it didn't just have it on the remote. It had it on the set, too. So on the front of the set, it had channel, volume, and power. So I walk into watching him watch something that he doesn't normally watch, like Family Feud or something like that. But right below the TV is a pile of bottles, cans, and a couple shoes. Because he was too lazy to get up off the couch and go and turn the channel on the TV. He was just going to watch whatever came up next, right? So I say, what are you watching? Well, I'm watching this. Is that what you want to watch? No. I just didn't want to get up. Well, why don't you just change the channel with the remote? Well, I think the batteries are dead. It's not working, right? Now, I'm not even kidding. Right, maybe 20 foot across the room was a package of brand new batteries that he bought. He knew they were there. I said, well, you know there's a set of batteries right here, bro. I just walked right by them. Yeah, but I don't know if we have any scissors to open them up. So what he was doing, he was innovating. He just takes his shoe off and throwing it at the TV. So he's throwing shoes, he's throwing cans, bottles, anything he can, leaving dents on the front of the TV. He's innovating. Now listen, he's doing calculus in his head. He has to spin it just right. The HVAC system can't be on. He's thinking about the power of his arm, the angle of the set. He is going through complicated calculations in his head to avoid getting up, getting some scissors, cutting open the batteries, stick them in the remote, and watching whatever he wants. Slackers can innovate. They can innovate, but it has to provide them more leisure. I immediately regret throwing my shoe all the way across the stage. <laughs> I feel a little vulnerable up here for some reason. <laughs> Slackers also never finish anything. Never start, never change, and they never finish. And we get this in the 15th verse. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. It wears him out. He is overwhelmed by the heavy burden of feeding himself. Basic maneuvers are exhausting. And the only thing better than being fed is the peace of not moving. I mean, do you get the desperation in this passage? Never good at finishing anything. You know, I did an experiment because I love all of you so much. I jeopardized my own self with my wife to provide an illustration. So this week, I'm in the shower. We have a small bottle of soap. Small, it's, I mean, it's semi-big. In the, in, the, in the shower. But the thing is, is it has to be refilled by like a tankard of soap outside the bathroom somewhere. So whenever it gets low, the responsible person, whoever that is, typically not me, will get the bottle, take it outside, fill up the soap, put it back in the shower, and everything ticks on. I used the last of the soap this time, right? So I finish up, and then as I'm carrying the bottle out, I put it on her side of the sink, my wife's side of the sink. And I thought, I have a great opportunity here. I'm going to leave that there and I'm going to go on about my day, and I'm going to get a call before lunch. Before lunch, I'm all predicting it. I'm sitting there. I'm thinking really hard, how bad do I want this illustration? <laughs> and I said, I know I'm going to get a call, and she is going to let me know 
that I'm a slacker. Why? Because I, I started and attempted to do something, but I didn't finish it, right? This is the text that came. I did not get a call. I got a text. Are you unable to refill the soap? Question mark. Or is that, quote, my job, right? <laughs> so in a panic, I text back as fast as I can. Listen, babe, it's part of a preaching illustration. You will see LOL. <laughs> she was not LOLing back at all. Just radio silence. There was nothing there. <laughs> she, she doesn't care about this. But that's the thing. And even, and some of you men know this. I'll come into the house. My son is picking this up for me. It's not a great habit. But we'll walk in and she'll say, listen, we already ate. We know you guys came in a little bit late. The food is in the refrigerator. It's not been in there long. All you got to do is just fire up the range and just put it in a pot or a, a pan and you can cook it right up. It'll be ready in five minutes. So about that. So could you do it for me? Because you seem like you know how to do that really well. And I think it'd take me forever to do it. Would you do it? No, I'm busy. I won't do that. I just won't eat. I'll be fine. I start looking through the cupboards for anything that does not need preparation time, something that can go straight to the mouth, right? And then so she says, she says, so you're telling me that if I cook that for you right now, you will sit down and eat a big plate of it. Well, yeah, I will. That's how it is. Slackers. Slackers, they don't finish things. Now, as I'm going through this character sketch of what Proverbs shows us today, I know some of you are already thinking, I don't need this talk. That's what I thought reading it. I don't need this talk. Luke, you don't know me. I got a to-do list that is as big as a CEO's, and, and my calendar is yoked out, super busy. This is a talk for slackers. Luke, you shouldn't be giving this on spring break. All the students are gone. You should have given this at another time when all the students are back, because this is not for me. But friend, listen, for you busy people, you can be lazy. You can be super lazy. This is what C.J. Mahaney, <laughs> I knew someone was going to do it. You won't be part of my illustration. That's why I love you, Kevin. You're my best friend, man. C.J. Mahaney calls this the hectic slacker or the hectic sluggard, one who is busy. Because listen, being busy doesn't mean that you're being faithful. Being busy doesn't mean that you're being diligent. Being busy doesn't even mean that you're bearing any fruit. It just means that you're being busy. It just means that you have a flurry of activity going on around you. All of us, all of us have a billion things to do on our list, do we not? All of us do. Not just people who have a clock-in, clock-out job. But those of us who are attending homes and cultivating homesteads, like, like a mother, homeschool family, students. Everyone in this room has a billion things they can do. But, but God has given us priorities that are endorsed and defined by our roles. Now this, this is important for you to get. You might be doing a billion things and probably should not be doing a billion things. You see, God has given us roles, and out of those roles come defined priorities, and out of those priorities really dictate what we ought to and ought not to be doing, how busy we should be and where our business should come from. So here's an example. I'm a Christian first. Well, that sets up some priorities for me because that's a role that God has given me, right? I'm a husband. Then I'm a father. Hey, listen, then I'm a friend. Then I'm a pastor. Then I'm a church planter. That's just six, five or six roles. But if you list out all of your roles, things come out of that. Priorities. And those priorities define what it is that you do and do not do. 
There's a billion things you could be doing, but there's only a few things you should be doing. Laziness and being a sluggard a lot of times comes whenever we just mix all that up. We do a billion things that have nothing to do with our priorities. We just do stuff just to do stuff, right? This is where the slacker spends the majority of their time, doing a billion things that have nothing to do with what they should be doing, right? Listen, if I am super busy polishing my rims, like every day, working on my turkey call, illustrating a sci-fi book that I really want to write. I could be busy with these things, and I could be a slacker at the same time. You see how that works? It's not my role. Those aren't my priorities. They're just not my priorities anyway. You could be busy, and you could be super lazy all at the same time. And I think some of us in this room are probably really, really, really in this category. What that means is you might be going to bed tired at the end of the day because there's a flurry of activity going on around you, and you might be a slacker all at the same time. Just because you're breaking a sweat at your work doesn't mean that it's not lazy work. And that's what the Bible is telling us right here. doesn't mean you're being fruitful. doesn't mean you're being diligent. Not only do slackers spend the, their, their time doing the wrong things, they misspend their time doing the right things. Slackers are good at this. This is what we call procrastination, right? Procrastination is actually a little bit nasty because it gives the image of activity. It's just that all the activities at the midnight hour. We swear we're busy. There's this guy, his name is Walter Hanniger, and he wrote an article called Putting Off Procrastination. It was published a couple years ago. He said this in describing his college experience. First rule, if my task is not due anytime soon, put it off. First rule. Second rule, if the task is due tomorrow, stop all other responsibilities and focus on the one task. It's sounding very familiar, right? Number three, after accomplishing a large task, take a break and reward yourself. <laughs> and there you just defined five years of my life. My college experience was pretty much that. It's procrastination. Hectic slackers struggle with this because it makes us feel overly busy. What are you doing? I can't talk right now. I'm super busy. I'm cramming for a test. What are you doing right now? I'm super busy. I've got a deadline tomorrow. Super busy. I got this going on. Super busy. I got that going on. More slackers at the same time. You're not overly busy. You're just a bad planner. Just a bad planner. The thing is, God's truth, his gospel, when it comes in, it totally and radically reshapes how we see work. And when I was a college student, it was the first time I heard a biblical teaching on what work ought to look like and what work means. It, it reshaped everything. I was a food server at El Chico, which is the Spanish version of Chili's, probably, something like that. Not the greatest place to wait tables. I hated it. I hated the job. I hated clocking in. I hated the people I worked with. I hated the people I served. I hated the money I made. I hated the way I smelled when I got in my car. I hated everything. I hated everything. I hated everybody, right? And then... God ruins me with this teaching on what work ought to look like. So I hope it ruins some of you because I think it could help you. Genesis 2. Look in your Bible at Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. The word of the Lord that's going to help us today says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we're watching creation here. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. We're going to skip ahead to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. And here we see the very first time the primary directive to mankind to work is given. Here it is. We are to work. Now this was work before the fall. This was work before it became incredibly frustrating. It was enjoyable. Work was satisfying. Adam would have woke up and been excited and encouraged and drawn to the work that was before him. In fact, this work wasn't meant to just stay in the Garden of Eden. God's idea was that it would expand and go global. They were to take the garden everywhere. We see this in Genesis 1.26. So flip back a page or so. And you will see this. Then God said, verse 26 of the first chapter, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have, big word for us today, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion. The idea behind dominion is simply taking what is disordered and chaotic and bringing order to it. Taking what is scattered and making it peaceful. Taking what is futile and making it work. It's what dominion is. So don't think vocation. Don't think job at work I get salary for. Think bigger. Think bigger than this. Ordering the home. Students being students. Dominion. Taking what is chaotic and bringing order to it. Not only were they to order creation, they were actually to create culture. That's what, whenever they're expanding across the globe, whenever they're spreading their dominion, the idea is that they make babies, a bunch of babies, and they teach them to do the same thing. And these families get really close to each other, and they make tribes, make little hamlets, and then villages, and then cities. And these cities develop culture, a way to look at food, a way to look at history and tradition, develop a language, develop a theology. That was the idea. Mankind, however, sinned. We sinned and we refused to trust God and we wouldn't stop working. We wouldn't stop creating culture and creating cities and building bridges and planes. We we wouldn't stop doing that. It's just that now it's changed. Sin fractured the work relationship between man and work. We wouldn't quit working, but now we would work to our own glory. We would no longer work to the Lord's. This is what it looks like for work to be under a curse. If you flip back forward a few pages, you'll go to Genesis 3. Go to Genesis 3 in your Bible. And if we jump to the 17th verse, we we see God talking to Adam as he's doling out his judgment on what mankind has done. And he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. That's a popular phrase at my house. When something goes wrong, I'm always muttering that under my breath. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. What does this look like for us today? What does thorns and thistles look like? Boring meetings, miscommunication, office politics, headaches, layoffs, Boss acting like a donkey, employees acting like a donkey, stolen staplers, you name it. 
And it's not just people who clock in and clock out that have these things called thorns and thistles. Students have thorns and thistles, don't they? Moms who stay at home and do this incredible titanic task of nurturing an environment for the family. There's lots of thorns and thistles. That's what's going on right here. Work is hard, but it's still good. This is the collision right here between theology and culture. Work is hard, but it is still very good because it's still God's primary directive over mankind. Right? Work is not a curse. Frustrating work is a curse. Work is not a curse. Frustrating work is a curse. Work is not bad. It's not to be escaped. It's not to be just tolerated. It's not to be abandoned. It's not to be excused. It is to be redeemed. Redeemed. You see, we're conditioned to hate work as we grow up. We're conditioned to despise it. And if we have a really, really good job, then we tolerate it. We're, we're, we're encouraged and, and encultured, I guess, to try to get off and escape it any chance we get because we hate it. Taking dominion. And again, I'm not even talking about vocation. Mowing the lawn, changing diapers, cleaning dishes. We escape it any chance we get. We escape it during the day. We escape it in the evening. We will be diverted in any way possible. It's a failure to take dominion. It's a failure to take dominion over our time and over the space around us. But whenever we do do a gospel-saturated job, which we're going to look at, on what it looks like to take dominion of the space around us, the chaos and the disorder around us, it glorifies God because it paints a different picture of one who ultimately created and then corrected this chaos around us. God created something perfect out of chaos. And then we broke it again, and then he comes back to redeem it all. The ultimate worker. It's a beautiful picture. We're going to look at this in just a little bit. But the lie that we hear in our head, and this isn't the lie that we say out loud, but this is the lie whenever we stop, whenever we stop working and we start leisuring or escaping or going to sleep or going to just empty busyness. And it's this, God, you are not good and nor is your work. Nor is your work. You are not good. Your directive to work and take dominion is not good. I have to escape both. I have to escape you and I have to escape work. Now, we don't say this out loud, but it's what we say whenever we choose laziness. This is what we do when we escape and we abandon work. It's what we're saying with our hearts. Every time we are lazy, every time we are choosing laziness, we are telling God he is not good enough. And what you've given me is not satisfying. So I have to go somewhere else to get my satisfaction. I have to find it somewhere else in a device, in sleep, in a sport, in whatever. I've got to find it somewhere else. Every time we escape work, we escape this mandate to take dominion. But the truth that God gives us, and we've been going over the four G's every single week since we started this this series, what helps us is the truth of the gospel that says God is good. So you don't need to look elsewhere. God is good. So you don't need to look somewhere else to be satisfied. God is good. That means his directives are good for us. That means what he prescribes to us is good for us. And we don't have to escape those things either. It's it's not just, I don't want to escape God, but I want to escape what he has given me. We don't have to escape any of it. We don't have to exit any of it. Friends, listen, there is joy in taking dominion over chaos, isn't there? We know this. There's a peace in it. It's, It's a deep satisfaction in it. I was running a week ago with my son, and we got close to the house, um, and there was a guy out there running his weed whacker 
I don't even know why. I mean, the snow had barely melted. He was getting to jump on the competition, I guess. But I mean, he was burning this hard edge in his lawn, and he's running this. And he has this thing full throttle. And all you could smell was bad two-cycle engine oil and gas from last year's mowing season, right? It just had that smell to it. And we've all smelled that smell. We run by, and my son takes this deep breath, and he goes, I love that smell. I love it. What does he mean? He does. He loves taking dominion over the mess that is our, our property. He loves to mow it. He loves, he loves to keep it. He loves to move stuff around, chop stuff down, burn stuff up. He loves to just take what is wild and craziness and disordered and bring shape to it. And last year when we were standing there after a job well done, job well done meaning he did all the work, and I came up and patted him on the back, <laughs> in that moment with his hands on his, his hips, he looks. And I said, son, you know why you're taking so much joy in this moment? It's because God put an imprint on you to enjoy dominion over chaos. That's just, it's in all of us. It's stamped in our DNA and we can't shake it. There is something about seeing what is crazy and disordered and haywire and saying, now we will cast order to it. You don't even have to know why it, why it feels good to know that it feels good. It's the way God created us. We created in his image. And there it is, our own little edge of the broken garden. And a 13-year-old boy understands it. It's interesting. The Bible actually explains it to us, though. We'll put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans 8, we see a description of what I'm talking about. Romans 8. In the 20th verse, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility. So that's, an, that's a state of disorder and chaos, I guess you can say. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is a beautiful picture of God's end game. Right? His end game is to renew creation. I think sometimes we shorthand him, and we think that the grace that comes in God's rescue is just to attach us to heaven. That redemption is just meant to get you in the door of another place at another time. It's much bigger than that. The picture of the cross, the picture of an empty tomb, is actually to redeem creation. All that is broken under the weight of sin. Trees that don't grow right. Animals that don't act right. Creation. Cracked, battered, beaten, disordered. Our great orderer is coming to fix and this rescue is a grace to you because you don't deserve it. I mean, I don't deserve it. We just don't deserve this. We deserve to be escaped, don't we? That's what justice is. Justice is, is that he doesn't work and we are escaped. And we are abandoned. Right? And that's what justice is. But in the gospel, we see love come alongside and join justice. Love doesn't cancel justice out. You hear that sometimes in books and speakers. It's not true. Love does not come to tackle justice and hold it down. Love comes alongside justice, right? And now another is wiped out for you. Justice is delivered. It's just not on you. Love is delivered towards you. Both are expressed simultaneously. And this grace doesn't just lift us from spiritual death. It replaces our grid, how we see things. 
changes the way we see, the way we talk, and it changes the way we work. It changes the way we work. Friends, listen, if you're still acting like a pagan at work, not really totally apprehended the gospel yet. If you are the I hate Monday guy, you have a lot to learn. You have a lot to learn when it comes to work. If you're looking to do anything except the hard thing, you have a lot to learn about the gospel. It is not implicitly your right, your inalienable right to be a slacker. Not at home, not at work. We glorify God by taking dominion of the disorder and the chaos around us. It's very important for us to see this. How do we change the slacker in all of us? Right? It's the question we come to as we start to land the plane. And Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 15. He helps me. 1 Corinthians 15. Is this going to be up there? Verse 10? Okay. Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Listen, it is only by the grace of God that we cannot be slackers. It's, <laughs> hear me, it's only by the grace of God that we can work well to his glory. You don't need God's grace to be a hard worker. You need God's grace to be a hard worker for his glory. There's a lot of people out there that are hard, 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 hard workers, but it's really for their own glory. It's for the establishment of their own kingdom. But to do it for another, that requires grace. It just requires a lot of grace. It also requires a lot of repentance. We also must repent if we want to change from being a slacker. Just repent for those little moments. And I'm hoping some have popped up in your mind of where you want to escape and take the exit ramp off of having dominion over just the disordered world around you. This was a painful sermon to put together this week. Because I am an overworker, and I am a grade A slacker at the same time. How do we change each other? We can ask for grace to change ourselves. How do we change those around us? Those that we do life with, whether they're in family, in community, those we work with. How do we do this? Right? What does their laziness look like? I'll ask you that. What does their escape and diversion look like? Are they sleeping? Are they retreating into leisure? Are they finding busyness that really has no value to it? I will say that it's not a habit issue. It's a heart issue. It's not a habit issue. It's definitely a heart issue. So beware, friend. Christian, beware of coming alongside another Christian and telling them how to change their behavior. That's always what we want to do. Stop doing that for this reason. Stop doing that. And we don't really get too close to the heart, but that's where all the change happens. Because if you know someone that you're doing life with or family with, and they're just an addict when it comes to gaming or football or Facebook or whatever else, you could tell them, get off the computer, sell the gaming equipment. You could tell them whatever to, to stop the immediate specific action and they will find another one because that's what we do. That's what our hearts do. We create, we create escapes. We create diversions to insulate our idols. Take away a habit, we'll make a new one. That's just what the heart is good at. We create new habits to insulate old idols all the time. The real change does not come from changing behavior. The real change comes when God changes our heart. And friend, you don't even have the power to do that with those that you're doing life with. You have to lead them to the one who does. 
You have to lead those who are lazy slackers around you to the one who was never lazy, nor was he a slacker. You have to show them a different picture of what the gospel is because, as I said, they're not apprehending it. They don't have their arms all the way around it. You can help them. Can you see where their heart has been satisfied by a lie? Some of you say, yes, I I think I can. If you can see it, then most likely God has given you the task of speaking to them about it. Okay? No, Luke, I can't. I can't see it. Then you need to pray that God would show you. No, Luke, I I can see that they're lazy, but I don't know what their heart's chasing after. Well, then begin the work of asking God. Begin the work. Because, listen, if you are lazy about helping someone with their laziness, then can we just be serious for a minute? You're a worse slacker than they are. It's easy to be slackers, helping people not be slackers. But this is what it means in community. It means even being responsible for the chaos in the people around us and helping take dominion, helping bring order and make sense of what is futile and what is senseless. Listen, sometimes, well, I'll just say all the time, whenever I am tempted to be lazy, all it takes is someone reminding me of a picture of a God who came to bring order to what I have destroyed. I mean, look at Genesis. I mean, don't go there now, but on your own, look at Genesis. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the formless, deep, dark. He's calling things into order. He's putting things together. Mankind enters the picture, and we fracture and cut it all up into pieces. We break it. So what does he do? He is crushed under the weight to fix it all again for us. He is basically the perfect dominion keeper. He has worked and kept the work for us. For us, who wouldn't want to work and didn't do any work. And when I see that, it reminds me that not only am I supposed to do a good job on the clock, I'm supposed to do a good job off the clock. And what does a good job even look like anymore? It reframes all of it. All of it. Sometimes laziness in our community and our family is a bit more serious, and it leaves victims, not just frustration, but serious victims. Paul actually approached this in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to run through it really quick. But in the 11th verse of the third chapter, Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So these are people that are mooching. They're mooching off of others, and now they've become a serious liability because they're costing others, not because they're in a deep part of need, but because they're too lazy to provide their own. Right? As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's a harsh thing. This isn't church discipline because they're not being put out. It just says, don't be spending a lot of time with them. Don't be connecting very deeply to them. Warn them, not as someone who's against the gospel, but warn them as a brother. Come alongside and help them. Give them a stern warning. You are hurting people by your laziness. You're hurting your wife. You're hurting your kids. You're hurting your community. Lots of marriages broken. Lots of marriages broken. Just because of laziness, because of being a slacker on one party or the other. It also hurts how people see God in the church, which is where I want to talk about city change just for a minute. Right? Because a changed people of God, they look different, they sound different, and they work different. And people take notice of that. Folks take notice of that. And when we work well for another's glory, and we don't succumb to idleness or being a slacker. We paint an accurate picture of God and his gospel for us. 
We just paint a better picture of it. That's why we see that we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works. Good works. He came and set up beforehand that we would walk properly in them. And listen, straight up, over a third of your life, you're going to spend bringing dominion over that which is chaotic around you. Over a third of it. Way over a third of it. No longer is work a necessary evil for you. It's a calling, friend. It's a calling. And when we have this mission field where mankind has a disdain for work, Mondays are horrible, Fridays a little bit better, work is to be avoided, it's almost a game. How many times can I call in and get out of work? What excuse can I come up with that never fails? It's the way of the world. How you handle yourself, it speaks volumes. Not just working excellently and closing more deals than the person next to you or getting better grades, but even why you're doing it. The why behind the what. It speaks incredibly. I want to finish with this passage, and it's in Revelation. In John's revelation of the last of days, he says something very, very cool. In 21 verse 1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen, this is a time of no more thorns and no more thistles. They're gone. No more frustrations at work. No more sin. No more dings, no more dents. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What begins in the garden actually ends in a city. A complex city. A connected city. A cultured city. Right? A redeemed city. A not chaotic city. This is what it is for us. We are, we are meant, God's intent for mankind was to expand the garden, to build cities, to build bridges and rockets and write laws and books and create music, to work and to keep the work. Right? This is what Bob Thune says on the subject. He says, God expected Adam and Eve to split the atom. They were meant to exercise dominion over all creation, turning, and I love this passage here, turning the entire earth into a showcase of the glory and beauty and majesty of God. Everything we do, everything we put our hands to is to create a showcase of the glory of God. And then working it and caring for it for all of eternity. What is he saying right here? There will be a day when we are collected by our victorious warrior king and work will not stop. It just won't have thorns and thistles. Think about that for a minute. We will always be working. But on that day, there will be no curse. Thorns and thistles are gone. So listen, as we go into this time of worship, in fact, you can go ahead and stand up. We're going to go into this time of worship, and the, the team will be coming up behind me. This room's a little different, right? But the communion tables are pretty much somewhat in the same area behind everything. So during worship, feel free at your convenience to go and take communion, to go back and do it with those that you love, those around you. You can do it by yourself. That's totally fine too. But as I say every week, the idea of communion, our family meal before God, it looks two ways. It looks behind us and it looks ahead of us, right? It looks behind us and it looks ahead of us. Behind us, it looks to a place of the cross, right? It looks to a place where our sin was canceled. 
looks to a place where the curse over us was lifted, but it also looks forward to a banqueting time. A time not where just the curse is lifted, but the curse over work is lifted. A time where we eat freely with our king who loved us and worked for us in our absence of work. So as you spend time repenting today, I know I'm going to spend some time repenting today. Some of us need to repent just for being lazy. Lazy maybe in some areas we didn't even really realize we were being lazy, but to repent for escaping work. And some of us, we need to repent for being a sinner, repent for escaping a king. Some of us, we escape work, and we've escaped a king all at the same time. So what I would say is, is as we do this, and as we worship God, we'll have people around. I know Wes is in the back by the door, and I'll be in the back over by that door over here, way over there, about 20 foot away. But as we worship and the lights are out, if you just need someone to talk to, if you just need someone to ask questions and say, hey, I had this encounter when I was in middle school, or I've always wondered about God, but I've never been quite sure if I've been escaping him or embracing him, it shouldn't be that difficult. We'd love to help you work through those knots. Because we're either escaping him or we're embracing him. So we should repent as a body today, corporately. Repent for being lazy. Repent for escaping, not just his dominion is called to take dominion but just escaping him as a king altogether and there's grace to be found because he's that good he's that good grace to you is that you have the identity of one who has never escaped work one who's never been lazy because jesus has given his identity to you and in that swap and in that change you were viewed esteemed and held as one who has always worked perfectly for god's glory and never your own that's how god sees you if you were his child, that's how he sees you. If you were not his child and you were very far from him, listen, don't despise the day the Lord speaks to you. Don't despise that day. Don't make short change of that day. Talk to someone today. Just talk to someone. Father, we thank you for your goodness. As we pray and as we move on to worship you deeper, not just through the hearing of the word and the preaching of the word, but as we sing and as we lift up our voice and as we see the words and as we take communion and we, we, we bow our hearts to you, God, that you would help us see where we have been lazy and not taken com- just dominion. Lord, how much I felt shame in putting this together. Felt shame in the depth of my sin. But then your grace says I am not condemned. That I could be convicted, but I'm never condemned. Lord, thank you for convicting our sin, but never condemning us. For you love us, you pursue us, you are excited by us, you embrace us even when we try to escape you, for you are that good and your grace is that, that mysterious and that beautiful. Lord, help us in this time see you differently. Help us in this time see you clearly, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.